0: Well, we are nearing the end of our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and and we've seen that despite significant hardship, an abundance of joy and perseverance. So, So we've been asking the question, where does Paul get this joy? How is it that he can persevere with rejoicing in the midst of suffering? I think that our passage this morning does a lot in the way of answering that. Last week, we saw Paul following Christ's humble example of, of emptying himself, counting his earthly birthright, his position, his privilege, his earthly citizenship as nothing compared to knowing Christ. And as Paul brings his letter to a close, he, he lays out the what for. He's, he's addressed suffering for the sake of the gospel and the, the ultimate example of humility in Christ and exhorted his readers to walk in obedience and to work out their own salvation, to be watchful and to rejoice. And all of it's been chalked full of vigor and passion and conviction. But at some point, the question needs to be raised, what for? Why should we as the church live like this? I think that's what Paul's answering here at the end of this letter. I'll give a bit of a spoiler here and then we'll unpack it as much as we can in our time. Uh, Paul would say that the church in Philippi and the church in Houston, the, the host of all believers, should live according to this truth because Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer, but it's never wrong, right? Because Jesus... Because Christ and Christ alone is the goal. The the prize, as Paul will say. And in him, we have citizenship in heaven. In him, we have the hope that he will come again. and, And we will be transformed to be like him. In him, all things will be made new. In him is resurrection life. This is why we live in humble, obedient enduring unity. So let's look at this passage. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Okay, stop there. Obtained what? Now, Paul, Paul's in the middle of a thought here. He's continuing on from the previous verses, namely verses 10 and 11. So remember there, he, he speaks of gaining Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection from the dead and we learned last week that uh, the knowing christ is more than just knowledge right more than just knowing facts about him but but knowing is communion with christ through life and suffering and bread and wine all of christ Just to dial in on those last words of verse 11 there for a minute, attaining the resurrection from the dead is not an isolated event. Paul Paul isn't strictly speaking of new life after death. He isn't even speaking of the resurrection power that we experience now in Christ. No, Paul, Paul is pointing to the culmination of the Christian hope. The future hope that all in Christ will one day be raised to new life for the purpose of knowing him, communion with Christ. This is the goal. This is what Paul is referring to when he says, I have not obtained this. I'm not yet perfect. And there, a better or more helpful translation would be, I have not already been perfected. I'm not already, not yet. Do you hear the hope there? Paul Paul, Paul says, I've got my eyes trained on this goal and and this prize of knowing Christ and the, the fullness of his resurrection. And I know that I will be perfected, sanctified, glorified. He's pointing to the glory that all who are in Christ will experience. But he says, not yet. He's not ignorant to the fact that we're still human, and and Christ still has work to do. And even as holy as Paul was, he was not blameless. And and, and I think that you can even hear a bit of frustration as he knows that his life was not verses 10 and 11 realized, but he's steadfast in his longing for and, and working toward and trusting in Christ For his transformation and perfection. So, not that I've already obtained fully knowing Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Let's keep reading in verse 12. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So, considering that he hasn't already attained his goal, what does he do? He presses on. And this is the sense of following after or, or pursuing with, with vigor, never settling. Now, I don't know that any of us would consider ourselves perfect or would be so bold as, as to claim that we've arrived. But I think it would, be fair, it would be fair to assume that some of us have settled. Some of us, not all of us, but, but some of us, believe that where we are is good enough fine but Paul's example which we are called to look to is one of pressing on of straining forward and notice that the fuel is because Christ Jesus has made me his own 1 John 4:19 says we love him because he first loved us We did not lay hold of Christ first. He is the first mover, right? And there's no other way to eternal life. Paul is vigorously pursuing his goal with with all his might, and, and it's only because Christ was there first pursuing him and making him his own. So all of his own effort then is simply in response to being taken hold of by Christ. And as Christians, we know the same grace, so we don't settle. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. We know what it is now. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So in light of what Paul said back in verses 10 and 11, the prize is full communion with Christ, his suffering and death and ultimate resurrection. And and to that end, as we saw last week, everything else is not only loss or garbage, but it's to be forgotten altogether. Now, does this mean that we're all supposed to walk around with fake amnesia? No. But we can't afford to... To look over our shoulder if we have the, the single mindedness that Paul is attributing to the Christian life, the verb straining forward here really captures the inner uh, the, the image of a runner who strains and and leans forward into the race, reaching for the goal with every ounce of his being paul can 't afford to look to, or to remember what he 's already counted as Loss as nothing for the sake of knowing Christ. A runner can't afford to focus on what or who is behind them if they're going to achieve the goal that they're dead set on. They're not thinking about the starting line if they're focused on finishing well. But also notice that Paul gives the present tense of forgetting. I am forgetting what lies behind There's this determination to actively not be weighed down by by what was abandoned, but also by what was already achieved. He's already been there. His aim is completely ahead before him. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God this straining forward and pressing on and abandoning what lies behind, eyes fixed on Christ, Paul says is the one thing I do. Now, he doesn't literally mean I only do one thing. Paul did a lot of things, so many things. But he's doing all of those things in light of the one thing. He's doing one thing in a myriad of ways. So he's not saying that we do more and more and more just to get ahead or to feel better about ourselves. It means that in all things, Christ is first. In, in all the things that the Lord has us doing, knowing him is our priority in those things. So with eyes fixed on the prize that is Christ and the resurrection of the dead, the the hope of future glory, Paul tells the church in verse 15 to hold true to what they have attained. He wants them to hold fast to their certain future in Christ and not be distracted along the way with lesser things. This is important. And And it really stands in contrast to a world around us that tries to make the present eternal. We've talked before about Western society being the most death-denying culture in the history of the world. And and in that hopelessness, as true believers in Christ, we need to be reminded again that there is an eternal glory that we await. And, And God's purposes for all things are not finished until he has brought our salvation The salvation of the church, his bride, to its consummation. So Paul finds this life, here and now, meaningful precisely because he sees the future with clarity. All right, let's keep moving. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So Paul's going to give a contrast here. He's spent time passionately expressing how we ought to live with, with uh, imitating him, with Christ as the source. right? And, and now he's very directly speaking to how not to live. And here's what's sad. This was not only true back then, but is increasingly true today. Notice that he says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not some, many. Verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is just Paul straight up giving examples of what Jesus said, that by their fruit you will know them. These are those who sadly don't care about anything but their earthly appetites, and they sacrifice the taste of the one true God. They set their hearts and minds and affections on earthly things. They, they love them, and they put their hope in them, and they glory in their shame. They not only sin, but then they brag about it. And Paul spells out their end, destruction, no hope of resurrection to life. And Paul is showing how absurd it would be for Christians to follow in this example. See, they've made the trade of citizen, citizenship in heaven for citizenship here, worshiping themselves instead of Christ. They've, made, uh, they've traded earthly pleasures for eternal glories, And that's a dumb trade. But, he says, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, I want to talk for a minute about citizenship because, like Drew's mentioned in the past weeks, the the city of Philippi was very Roman and very loyal to their citizenship. And, and Paul challenges that. If you remember the structure that Drew showed a couple of weeks ago, the, the chiasm, this passage that we're in here mirrors uh, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And in both passages, Paul uses political language to describe the Christian life as citizenship, now let's talk about this, because I'm sure that mentioning the politics of Christianity might not sit well with some. And, and citizenship in heaven, as, as Paul says that we have, can seem like a very abstract idea. But hear me out. The English word, political, comes from the Greek word for city, polis. So, so if we think about it, especially coming off a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, where we learned that the church is the heavenly city of God. The church is unavoidably political, since she is herself a city. And and the church isn't a city in the way that earthly cities are cities, but to quote one theologian, she is political in the sense that she is a community under the authority of a king and his appointed rulers, governed by her own constitutions and procedures with her own calendar, culture, and customs. So for Paul to use language of citizenship and and affirm that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord and Savior, he's describing the church who, who needs to learn to live as citizens of an entirely different commonwealth, the one that places new and better demands on its citizens. Here in verse 20, Paul refers to all believers as citizens of heaven, And the idea isn't that Christians just fly away home to heaven when we die, right? The idea is that the church, we are right now part of a heavenly empire ruled by Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Philippi was a Roman colony, but but the church in Philippi was a heavenly colony. As Christians, we're citizens of heaven first and foremost. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul's pointing again to the future hope of the resurrection from the dead, all things made new, all believers to rise again in Christ for eternity. This is what we press on toward. Again, Paul's not saying these things because he can't wait to get out of here. He's already given instruction on, on how to live now and it doesn't involve waiting around for a bright light in the sky to beam us up. Our citizenship is in heaven, not will be, is in heaven. This isn't only a future hope, but but a present reality. So from our present reality, we are right now citizens of heaven. We work and wait. We build and yearn. We plant and pray. Yes, it will be fully realized one day. And Paul longingly looks to and points us to that day but it doesn't mean that we stop praying for and living for our Father's will to be done on earth now as it is in heaven. Our heavenly citizenship allows us the opportunity to influence the world here and now, to be a part of God's kingdom come on earth. And, and we should revel in that. That should change the way we do everything, right? We do one thing in a myriad of ways. So let's end with the first few verses of chapter four here. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. As has been mentioned throughout the sermon series, this letter was written first and foremost to the church in Philippi, not to individuals for individual application. When Paul calls the Philippians to stand firm in the Lord, it's not just a word for individual Christians, but for the body of believers, the church. Stand firm together in the Lord. And he makes this point even clearer in the following two verses. I entreat Euodia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So Paul's just spent time laying out his grand vision for where our hope lies, specifically in the consummation of all things by the power of Jesus. And here's where it gets worked out. Paul's giving a real life example of everything he's laid out in this letter. And and he's naming names, right? These two women, presumably uh, influential leaders in the Philippian church, are bickering to the point where uh, the news of their disagreement reaches Paul in prison. So it it was no small thing. And their disunity, especially as leaders, had the potential to spread in the church. And, And Paul wants to cut it off. So he's applying his teaching to, the, to, to this situation and to these people. But, but it's not just to or at them. There are implications for the whole church. Look, he's, he's calling for others within the church to help. Why? Because of his consistent call to the church to stand firm in, in one spirit. As one person, he says earlier in chapter 1, holding fast to the faith of the gospel. See, Paul had no intention of the discord between these women being viewed by the congregation as as a personal matter. These faithful women whose names were written in the book of life needed help from the whole church to resolve their differences. Paul wants the church to adopt the mind of Christ— which also looks like abandoning self-righteous personal agendas that will inevitably spill over and poison the life of the church. Listen, the gospel is always at stake. Always. And and the call to God's people, whose names are written in the book of life, is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right now and in light of any opposition that we may face. But in order to do so effectively, we need to learn to trade our personal agendas for the agenda of the gospel. We need to have the same mindset in the Lord. There's a daily reality of striving for unity, laboring together in the gospel, believing that it's, that it's not all in vain. That Christ will come again and make all things new. This means humility. This means sacrifice. Giving ourselves for the sake of others. This is what the gospel is all about. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithful servant, St. Paul, who by your spirit has implored us to see Christ as our only goal and prize and to press on with all we have to know Christ. Thank you for confirming our citizenship in your holy nation. May we live in a manner worthy of your gospel. Give us the endurance to not settle, but persevere daily to see your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.